They had two bodies, but only one brain! That could lead to some confusion. This is what it sounds like when doves cry. (laughs) I think it's hilarious. that in your pipe and smoke it. Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that leaves no room for misinterpretation. I'm Kelly Anakin. And I'm Tom Schneider. We are properly married. But every time we fight, the ghost of Mr. Pamuk rears his ugly head. It's not my fault our apartment is haunted by the ghost of a Turkish diplomat. (laughs) Isn't it, Kelly? (laughs) My vagina and I have no comment. (laughs) Fair enough. We have two new countries to report today, sort of. Uh, one of which is Estonia, and the other of which is Europe, which I don't believe is a country, but the website that hosts our podcast does believe that Europe is a country. Well, it also now believes that there is a blank country right. from which we have received literally hundreds of downloads. <laughs> yes. So I'm beginning to think that it's not quite so infallible. Yeah. So I've, I've got my questions there, but maybe it was just like if somebody was like just in the middle of the Baltic Sea... <laughs> And downloaded our podcast. Uh, Europe. <laughs> so, if you downloaded our podcast from the Baltic Sea, please let us was know. Was it just one? Uh, I think it was just the one, yeah. Okay, yeah. interesting. Yeah. If you yourself can shed any light on this, <laughs> please get in touch. <laughs> Speaking of getting in touch, as we announced, uh, I believe last week, we will be doing two standalone Tom Repeats History Fashion Backwards episodes as part of our hiatus coverage. So if there is a specific question you have about the Edwardian time period or anything you've seen on Downton Abbey that you'd kind of like explicated for you, please email us with the subject line Tom Repeats History slash Fashion Backwards. You can reach us at our email address, which is upyoursdownstairs at gmail.com. You can send us a carrier pigeon on Twitter at 5MaggieSmiths, or you can uh, ask a question uh, by message on Facebook. Just search Up Yours Downstairs. And uh, while you're at it, go ahead and like us. Because uh, we're at well over 200 likes and followers on both Twitter and Facebook now, which is something I never dreamed of doing on my own. That's right. And we like being liked. We so. do like being liked. Yeah. And I mean, we're definitely interested in your suggestions. I'm quite happy to just hit random page on Wikipedia until I find something interesting. But uh, <laughs> Yes. And uh, one caveat, we don't know how many requests we're going to get. So we may not be able to get to everything. Right. Again, though, you know, we may do a third standalone episode before Downton Abbey comes back, or possibly even a fourth, as it is a criminally long hiatus. That's right. We're all in the middle of a vast wasteland at this point. Julian Fellows is just punishing us for triumphing (laughs) in the American Revolution. (laughs) That's right. But we're going to get through this together, everybody. Although I guess the people who are listening from Great Britain are at a disadvantage, because they'll be able to watch Downton Abbey. However, they will not be privy to our trenchant insight until it premieres in America. Yeah. So, uh, suck it, limeys. <laughs> I, I don't. I'm... What was that sound? Oh, that was just the sound of all of our uh, <laughs> British downloads going down the toilet, Tom. Thanks a lot. I, I apologize if my comments were misunderstood. <laughs> Boy, that is an apology worthy of Lady Mary. <laughs> all right, that brings us to telegrams from our cousins. First up is another telegram from Cousin Phoenix. My dearest cousins, it is I once again, Dame Phoenix, and I have to say I have a newfound love and respect for Mr. Bates, as I have found myself a cripple, 
hangs head in shame. <laughs> yes, my dear cousins, this includes everyone. I'm a cripple. I pulled a muscle in my left calf a week and a half ago, and I'm still hobbling around with a cane. I say you call a ceasefire on Bates for that reason. And furthermore, at the death of Lavinia, I cried like a whiny little bitch. <laughs> Anyone who wasn't at least sad by that is a cold, heartless, Bolshevik communist. In the words of Kelly, boom! I'll leave you for now because I have to hobble my way to Ripon. Good day, my dear cousins. Ever faithfully yours, Dame Fee. Pronounced Fee. <laughs> yes, uh, I can relate. My, my left foot has been bothering me recently, although I've managed to avoid a cane and any sort of long-term disability. But and, Which I am pleased by. Yes. So we hope you have a speedy recovery, Dame Fee. Yes, indeed. Next, we have a telegram from Cousin Elizabeth, who writes, Dearest Cousins, I recently went on vacation to Bonaire, and being fully supportive of your quest for a global audience, I purposely waited to download your latest podcast during my trip. Luckily, I had saved up a bunch of your podcasts for my journey back to the States, which took a total of 16 hours. Your snark and hilarity helped the time fly by as I island hopped from Bonaire to Curaçao to Aruba. By the way, I check, and you already have downloads from those two countries, so consider the ABC Islands officially covered. And uh, it's true. We we do have Fantastic. Yeah. And so was Bonaire new this week or no? Or have we had Bonaire before? I'm not sure. I think that may be covered under the one... We have a download from the British Virgin Islands. Okay. And so my suspicion... I'm not sure if that is one of the British Virgin Islands. I don't know. Yeah. I'm horribly ill-traveled. Yes. So I I will research that. But uh, we do have Aruba and Curacao. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you, Cousin Elizabeth. I have to say all of the cousins make me be like, oh, I ought to get that passport I keep saying I'm going to (laughs) get. So we can like go places and do stuff and download our podcasts in exotic locations and <laughs> laugh and laugh. That's true. That would be a lot of fun. Next up, we have a telegram from Cousin Nicole. Two telegrams from Cousin Nicole, Ooh. in fact. Greetings, cousins. I write this telegram from the county of Humboldt in Northwest California, U.S. of A. And we all know what that means. <laughs> I write to let you know that not only do I enjoy Downton Abbey and enjoy your podcast, I have started re-listening to your podcast and laughing out loud a second time around. Please believe me when I say this is 100% due to your humor and not due to the plant that has made my county famous. <laughs> I stand corrected. No. Yeah. You have discussed what you will do between season two and season three of Downton and have mentioned Julian Fellow's Titanic, which I do not object to, but would like to strongly recommend the two of you recap James Cameron's Titanic. This would be hilarious and wonderful. Please recap the movie scene by scene like an episode of Downton and make another Monday morning at work very bearable. I will listen to your podcast a third time, but would rather hear you make fun of Rose and Jack. Well, number one, I think it bears mentioning James Cameron's Titanic was way, way up there in the rankings. I believe it was fifth or sixth Mm -hmm. on the list. I don't have it in front of me right now. And it's definitely on the short list of things to cover. Right. We are just bitter because we wanted to go see it in 3D (laughs) and we failed to do so. Yeah. So we are just sad. But we we definitely will. I mean, every time that movie is on TV, we wind up watching at least part of it. (laughs) It's true. So at some point, I think we have things slotted in until about October. Yeah. So maybe we'll do that as a holiday gift or a New Year's Day resolution type thing. Yes. And I I would point out when we do it, it is approximately as long as five episodes of Downton Abbey. So that will be a factor in how we cover it. Yeah, we probably won't be able to do scene by scene on that. Yeah. But... 
She also wrote back after the last episode aired, I must add to this telegram after listening to the latest installment of Up Yours Downstairs and learning something I already knew in my heart to be true. I myself am a 29-year-old female raised in the Midwestern United States and transplanted myself to Northern California as a young adult. All of Kelly's pop cultural references have always been right on with me, and now I know why. Cheers. All I can say is that you have tremendous taste and good fortune, Nicole, to be so similar to me. <laughs> yes. No, that's great. We're always happy to hear of people who have also transplanted out here to Northern California. Mm-hmm. So keep up the good work. Yeah. Stick around. Yeah. Kick back. We, we run into a surprising number of o- Ohioans. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So I believe that brings us to the recap, our very last recap. That's right. Of Downton Abbey. I can hardly believe it. It's pretty shocking bit of a uh, a bittersweet day definitely a bittersweet day yeah so we pick up today's episode with rosamond and the dowager countess rosamond is asking if the dowager countess knew bates well she says no but she saw him once when she went to talk to matthew in his bedroom Ooh la la uh, yeah it was quite the scandal i would also say it's so funny considering how vital bates is to the story that she really wouldn't have encountered him that much because right. he was unable to serve at table. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, she had literally no interaction with him. Right, right. And I think, I mean, that's, you know, that is more telling, I think that is more of an accurate portrayal of how much mixing between upstairs yes. and downstairs there would be as opposed to most of the show. Well, which- and I think that you can, I mean, you can mitigate it somewhat where you would have to assume that people who weren't in her generation would have mixed a bit more. True. And it's not as if the rest of the Crawleys are seeing him that much. Yeah. You know, we just, as the viewers, are privy to so much more of what's going on with him. Right. Also, I would just like to point out that the Dowager Countess is quite lucky to have only encountered Bates the one time. <laughs> yes. They then both marvel at the fact that there has been so little scandal around Bates's trial, and the Dowager Countess suggests that Sir Richard Carlyle may be shielding the family. They then move on to the subject of Jinxie. Because he is also an unsuitable spouse. That's right. Maggie Smith tells Rosamond that he is unsuitable and that he is a fortune hunter, and Rosamond doesn't care. She's tired of being alone, and she has plenty of money. Uh, actually, the Dowager Countess says that to emphasize how much of a fortune hunter she is, he is, she says that he she's lucky he isn't playing violin in Leicester Square. <laughs> Which, if you live in an area with a lot of street musicians, as we do, is especially hilarious. Yes. And I, I have to say, if Jinxie was playing violin in Leicester Square, he would clean up because he is so charming. He is very charming. Yes. And not too hard on the eyes like he's an older yeah. gentleman but he's not bad looking yeah i i can i can see worse yeah i mean the duke of crowbro for yeah. example <laughs> he had the benefit of youth and i still would not want to wake up next to that every day yeah or you know in the dressing room adjacent <laughs> to that right near that yes yeah <laughs> but in any case rosamond has not made a final decision yet but she's asking jinxie back for the servant's ball which the Dowager Countess wonders, is the servant's ball still going to happen after one of these servants was condemned to die? It's a fair question. Kind of hard to kick up your heels <laughs> yes. as a servant and remember that we're all so much dust in the wind. <laughs> At an inn, which I incorrectly initially identified as a pub, but I'm sure that would be ridiculous given the derision with which public houses are treated on this show. Mm-hmm. Mary insists that Anna sit down. Isabel, Murray, and Matthew tell her that Bates may not have to die, but they have to get his sentence commuted to life imprisonment before they can challenge the guilty verdict itself. 
and Lord Grantham can't believe Bates was convicted. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Someone's divorced from reality. Yeah. Isabel sensibly tells him he has to believe it mm-hmm. because it's happened. Yep. Uh, boom. <laughs> Matthew then tells Murray that Murray needs to write a letter to Mr. Short, who is the home secretary, who's a dirty, dirty liberal. Boo. Right. Here's my question, Lord Grantham. If you're trying to get a death sentence commuted for a lower class person, don't you want a liberal to be I making that decision? I had the same decision? thought. And I think, but I think as a conservative, he's assuming that only the amount of influence that he, Lord Grantham, mm. is bringing to the table is yeah. going to make any difference. Yeah. Which I don't know exactly what the party lines were back then. Right. But come on. Liberals generally are a little more generous to the lower classes. Yeah. Murray says that the prosecution's case is flawed because it doesn't account for premeditation. So it should be relatively simple for them to get the sentence commuted to life imprisonment versus death mm-hmm. by hanging. Yeah. And he also mentioned something about the evidence being circumstantial, which it certainly is. It was very circumstantial evidence. Yeah. I mean, again, assuming that Bates is innocent. Right. It's very circumstantial. Because, I mean, it's very damning evidence, but it's still right. not totally solid. Right. Anna continues to insist that Bates is innocent. She's very upset because everybody is is talking about it in legal terms, right. at which point you pretty much... It doesn't matter whether the person is or isn't innocent. It's about whether or not you can prove it in court. Right. And obviously, you know, she's got a much more emotional stake in this than anybody else. Right. Well, and I mean, Matthew, as we recall, is a solicitor. So, yes. I mean, he's naturally inclined to think it's of that It's actually way as really well. enjoyable to see he and Murray in their element like yeah. this. Because yeah. most of the conversations both of them are involved in on this show are so much frippery. Yeah. So it's nice to see them both, you know, exercising their professional knowledge. Yeah. Uh, Anna then asks Murray what chance they actually have to overturn the verdict. And Murray says it's not much of a chance, but there is a chance. And Anna bursts into tears. And I hate it when Anna cries. I just, I can't handle it. Yeah. She's one of my favorites. It's very hard to watch. Yeah. This is what it sounds like when doves cry. (laughs) You're right. It is. Back at Downton Abbey, Mrs. Patmore asks when everyone will be back. Uh, Mrs. Hughes says that she's not sure, but they took Anna to an inn to help her catch her breath. Not a dirty, dirty pup. Right. Daisy wonders, how will we ever face Anna? Uh, and Mrs. Hughes says, with kindness, I hope. And <laughs> at which point, the hall boy speaks, but he's just like, uh, someone's bait's going to be hanged. <laughs> which, you took the words right out of my mouth, hall boy. <laughs> which, just as Carson's coming in, he's come to fetch Mrs. Hughes so that she can tell McGee about the goings-on in court. Mrs. Hughes then makes an announcement to the room that while she was called for the prosecution, she does not believe in Mr. Bates's guilt. And Miss Shore, who is just amused by the whole thing. I throughout. hate her so much. She's like a super annoying golem. <laughs> she is. But she asks O'Brien what she thinks, i.e. as to whether she believes Mr. Bates did it. And O'Brien just says that she's sorry to have been a part of it. And she she turns to go. On her way out, she passes Thomas, who is slouching in his scheming doorway. <laughs> uh, Remind me to have one of those installed. <laughs> yeah, but a better model than Thomas's. Oh, yes. The successful <laughs> scheming doorway. Right. And he tactfully chooses this moment to point out that there's going to have to be a new valet now. Because it's been seven years and he's still trying to get that job. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been seven years and a war. Yeah. Like, everybody's been through some shit at this point, And he's still back banging on the bass drum. Yeah. Also, this just randomly occurred to me just now. Like, 
how badly injured was his hand? Because it never comes up. It's true. And you think it came up once, right? As a footman, like that would be as much of an impediment as say walking with a cane. Anyway, in any case, O'Brien says to Thomas that she doesn't often feel selfless, but when she listens to him, she does. I guess her days as Thomas's fag hag are officially at an end. Yeah, it seems I, like they're breaking up. I mean that both in the sense of being his smoking buddy and his homosexual lady friend. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a double entendre. Boom! <laughs> Up in the drawing room, McGee is speaking to Mrs. Hughes, having heard her account of the goings-on in court. And uh, McGee says Lord Grantham will be so upset by Bates' conviction. And Mrs. Hughes points out that everyone downstairs is quite upset, too, as no one in the Crawley house is likely to, oh, be convicted of murder. <laughs> when there is a person in their house who could have been convicted of murder. It's true. So McGee puts the kibosh on changing for dinner. She says nobody's going to be in the mood to change. And then uh, she says to tell Mrs. Patmore to serve dinner 20 minutes after Lord Grantham and Mary arrive home. Then she tells Mrs. Hughes that this is a time of grief and heartbreak for them. And Mrs. Hughes is like, thanks, Captain Obvious. I know, like, when's the last time you looked into a man's eyes as he was condemned to die in front of his wife? Yeah, here's my question about this scene. Why? Why did we have this scene? What did it accomplish? Why did McGee say that? Well, you might not have known that you were supposed to be sad. I, there's Perhaps the- <laughs> Julian Fellows knew the insane rage and hatred the character of Mr. Bates would provoke <laughs> and be confused and think perhaps the Hall Boy's bloodlust was the same feeling everyone at Downton Abbey was having. Just as we continue and discuss the many things that aren't in this episode, remember that this scene was. This scene was in this episode. And also, why didn't McGee go to court? Yeah. Like, it's so, because I know, you know, because we saw in the last recap, Isabel saying, oh, you know, she's going to go as part of the bucking up brigade, which I guarantee you would not have been McGee's function. <laughs> right. If she went to court. But, you know, she wants to know what happened. Like, fuck you, McGee. <laughs> go to the courtroom. What else are you going to do all day? Lounge on your chaise longue? That that was her plan. That probably was. It sounds delightful. She probably had some <laughs> bread and butter and some tea. Yeah. I was reading all about high tea. Spoilers for Fashion Backwards. <laughs> but OMG, that stuff sounds delicious. All right. Uh, down in the kitchen, Daisy is complaining. And but- it's not even about her sham marriage for a change. That's right. It's very exciting. But she's complaining to Mrs. Patmore, saying that it's down to her to produce dinner 20 minutes after everyone gets home and not knowing whether it's going to be two or three hours from now and how will everything be the right temperature, etc. And Mrs. Patmore is saying that, you know, today of all days for you to be complaining about your lot after Mr. Bates was convicted of murder. Uh, Which, if you hadn't heard, is a time of grief and heartbreak, not of agitating for fair wages. (laughs) Right. Sorry, I'm just getting as much McGee in as possible before there's no more McGee to impersonate. I, I mean, like I knew, but I hadn't really considered the fact that there just wouldn't be any more McGee in our future recaps. I know, it's going to be like nine months. Whew. Like, you could have a baby in nine months. It's true. That talked like McGee. <laughs> Dear God. But what about William? <laughs> At any rate, we uh, go back up to the library Mary comes in to see Lord Grantham drinking alone. Presumably they've arrived home and had dinner at this point. Yeah. She is wearing sackcloth because grief and heartbreak. <laughs> Seriously, she's wearing the ugliest drop-waist black dress I've ever seen. The only dress I've ever seen that I hate more is that red dress she kept wearing during the war. Yeah. Oh, Mary, get it together. <laughs> 
She tells Lord Grantham that Matthew and Isabel have gone home and Edith and Mamar. I love when British people say mama, but they end with the R. Yeah. I just think that's so awesome. Mm-hmm. They've gone to bed and she's dreadfully sorry about the trial. Lord Grantham asks after Anna and Mary has sent her to bed. Mm-hmm. Probably she's racked with sobs, which I wish I could just be there and like sing her a song. Yeah. Lord Grantham says he wants to ask Mary something. He wonders if she stays with Carlisle because he threatens to expose the story of Pamuk and vaguely reassures her that she is not the only Crawley to make a mistake. And fortunately, McGee told him all about it after he nearly cheated on her with Jane. Which I have to say, Lord Grantham, it was like, boy, Mary, this has been a really hard day for you. You seem really upset. Let me, with no build-up, just drop this huge bombshell on you, just to, just to see what happens. Now, you've been keeping a secret for seven years. Yeah. Like, like... Look, if we have all learned nothing else in our journey together, cousins, it is that Lord Grantham is a dick of the highest degree. I mean, we've never had anybody write in in his defense. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? No, we don't right. rag on him quite as much as Bates, but honestly, if I had to be like locked in a room for all eternity with one person, I would choose Bates. Yeah, I mean, because Bates, he's dour and sad and whatever, but like he... He knows what he's doing. He thinks it's the right thing. Right. But he knows that he's being sad and unlikable. Whereas just Lord Grantham just has no consideration for anyone else. I mean, that may just be part of being a high-ranking member of the peerage of I the mean, time period. Yeah. I mean, I don't think, you know, Hugh Bonneville or even necessarily Julian Fellows is at fault. I mean, I think this is perhaps just how men were. Yeah. But God, it's infuriating. <laughs> it is. Mary says that... Carlyle's threats to expose her scandalous past is part of the reason that she stays with him, but she says she is damaged goods, after all, in Mama's phrase. Yes. And Lord Grantham wonders if it's worth it. And uh, he asks her how Matthew views the late Mr. Pamuk. Once again betraying, I do really think Lord Grantham has been playing this long con with Matthew and Mary. Yeah. He's just like, eh, whatever. War, whatever. They're gonna, they're gonna, it's gonna work out. <laughs> they're gonna get together. Much like the viewing audience at home. <laughs> right. But Mary says Matthew doesn't know and that they split apart for other reasons due to Lavinia. Mm-hmm. And Lord Grantham wonders if those reasons are final. Mary says they are final for Matthew, so yes. Lord Grantham takes a dramatic pause and tells her to break off her engagement and run away to stay with her grandmother in America so she doesn't have to stay with a man who threatens to ruin her. And he says once he might have advocated for her ruination and and to be forever blotted or be stuck with this guy. Right. He would have advocated for her to to be stuck with that guy in order to keep the secret. But he's lived through a war, a murder trial, and his daughter marrying an Irishman— because all of those things are equally horrible. And only happen to him. He suggests that she find herself a cowboy in the Middle West to come back and shake up Downton Abbey. To which I reply, do you think that the war, the murder trial, and your daughter marrying an Irishman didn't shake up Downton Abbey? Like, what do you think is going to happen? He's just going to show up with a bottle of paste piccani salsa and be like, yeehaw, where's my tucks and tails? Like, it's not, it's not going to work that way. Like, Mary's just going to wind up being an extra on Deadwood 1920. <laughs> Man, I would watch that show. I would also watch, especially if Mary was in it. <laughs> Mary cries with relief, and I actually did as well. And she yeah. hugs her father for finally making the first good parenting decision he's made in the 20th century. Yeah. I mean, for all the legitimate grief we give him, good good call. No, absolutely. That's the right, right decision to make there. 
Mr. Carson is getting dressed when Thomas pops Ooh in. Ooh la la! <laughs> yes. Thomas says that Mr. Bates's absence will change things. By absence, he means death by hanging. <laughs> and from now on, when I say someone's not going to be somewhere, I'm like, oh, they'll be dead by hanging. So. <laughs> that could lead to some confusion. I know. It'll be like a farce. <laughs> yes. Or at least an episode of Benny Hill. <laughs> and he wonders if Carson has given any more thought to his application to be valid. Uh, Carson says they just discussed it with Lord Grantham, who thinks that Thomas is more suited to his current position. Ouch! Yeah. Thomas correctly deduces that this means that Lord Grantham doesn't trust him due to, you know, the stealing. Which, you're very lucky to even have been rehired as a footman, Thomas, so shut your stinking pie hole. Yeah. Like, Why? are you surprised? Why did they not hire Thomas as the hall boy and bump the hall boy I up know. a notch? He Let seems him to be, be doing the a valet. fine job. Yeah. He wants Bates to hang. I'm 100% <laughs> behind the hall boy for valet 2013. <laughs> Down in the kitchen. Daisy sighs over the vegetables she is preparing, as I have been wont to do <laughs> of an evening. Mrs. Patmore goes, and Daisy says she feels like Mrs. Patmore takes for granted and doesn't know, notice that she's human. Uh, she correctly states that Mrs. Patmore still treats her the same as when she first came, to wit, <laughs> but Daisy is a hard worker who's paid attention and learned how to be a good cook. And she says maybe it's wrong to be feeling upset on the day that Mr. Bates has been sentenced to die. But his fate has reminded her that life is short and I'm wasting mine. Mrs. Patmore suggests that she's tired and should go visit Mr. Mason's farm. Which, can she spare her? Really? <laughs> like, do any of these people do any work anymore? It just feels like they're always gallivanting off to visit their husbands in jail or visit their dead husband's father or, like, go start up, like, a, you know, illicit black market dry goods <laughs> store. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Fortunately, Daisy says William wouldn't like it and Mrs. Patmore rolls her eyes, taking us back to the status quo. Whew. <sighs> that yeah. was scary. No, I do enjoy Mrs. Patmore in this scene because she's just so confused when Daisy complains. She confused when anyone... Why would anybody complain? Yeah. What's happening? It's just, so she decides that Daisy's... Like, I didn't complain when I was struck blind! <laughs> right. And so she diagnoses Daisy as being tired, which I have, I have a feeling that in Mrs. Patmore's world, there's like three diagnoses for all occasions. Like, tired, I don't know what the... You know, constipated. <laughs> and ugly. <laughs> Uh, we next go to Lavinia's grave. Boo! <laughs> uh, Mary... We're living in the past! <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're not going to. Ugh. Mary, Matthew, and Isabel have all gathered there to place Lavinia's father's urn on her grave. It is, of course, raining, as is required by church law for any death-related ceremony. Matthew says that he's glad that Mary came, since the three of them were part of one another's story for a while. And Mary says that the story is at an end, since Matthew no longer wishes to live at Downton, and she'll be moving away soon. Matthew is surprised. He wonders if she means Haxby, which after all is right next door. Yes. And she uh, doesn't really answer, and then they all pray. Mm -hmm. And I say to both of them, how can any of you leave Cousin Isabel? She's so great. She is fantastic. So I'm going to read this next thing and then you can do the next thing because it makes no sense why they edited it like this. Right. The Dowager Countess comes into the library to find Daisy sobbing and tending the fire and asks, what on earth's the matter? 
And then we're back at the gravesite in the middle of the previous scene. And I, because it, it seems accidental, like they just accidentally yeah. edited this away. But here's what I think happened. I think they shot the whole graveyard scene, right? And they're in the editing room with all the footage and they're like, man, this scene is too short or too long. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to cut some out in the middle, but they didn't have anything to cover it with. Yeah. They didn't have any way to cut to later in the scene. And they're like, uh, just take part of the next scene and put it in. And that didn't work well. But then well. they also would have had it edit out the beginning or the middle of the next. Well, anyway. Look. Yeah. I mean, it, it just. Ours is not a reason why. It just seemed really abrupt. It was. Any case, back at the gravesite, Mary leaves Matthew and Isabel. And Isabel tells Matthew that Mary is still in love with him. He says that he doesn't think so, but Isabel says it's as plain as the nose on his face. Uh, Anybody who shows up to help you put the ashes of your ex-dead fiancé's father on your ex-dead fiancé's grave totally wants to bang you. Yeah. There is no other reason. There were two people that came with you to this, your mother and Mary. And I'm sure neither one of them wanted to actually be there. Yeah. Like, you didn't see Edith. At this shindig. Well, she knew that ship had sailed. Yeah. Too many church visits in the past. Yeah. It's a shame, really. She's just busy darning her spinster snood. (laughs) Matthew says that he thought that Mary was angry at him for throwing him over. And Isabel says that that's a different conversation. As opposed to, you know, angry and in love are not mutually exclusive. What? (laughs) Well, we need to have a talk when we're done with this. (laughs) I'll, I'll make a note. He says that it's impossible to explain why they can't be together. Isabel asks if it has to do with Lavinia, correctly identifying that it's quite possible to explain. <laughs> and well, he also qualified it. He said it's impossible to explain, or at least I'm not going to explain it. Okay, fair enough. He is a lawyer, after all. <laughs> yes. But Isabel thinks that Lavinia wouldn't have wanted him to be unhappy. For evidence, I would like to point out Lavinia's dying words. <laughs> But he says that he and Mary deserve to be unhappy. Isabel says that no one your age deserves to be unhappy, especially not when they can change it. Didn't the war teach him anything? Nope. Emo Matthew walks off to listen to his death cab for cutie phonograph records. (laughs) Indeed. But well done, Isabel. Yeah. Well said. I mean, Isabel's great because she can be very, like, forceful and definite without being overbearing or pushy. And... She excels at being overbearing and pushy as well, but she knows... Right, right. She generally knows when, well, at least in this particular Well, at least with Matthew. Yes. I think, you know, with Matthew, because they're family, she knows better. Back at the library, uh, the Dowager Countess tells Daisy that she can't have been false to William. Presumably Daisy has explained the whole thing off screen, (laughs) as everyone does, because God knows we wouldn't be interested. Yes. Because I want to almost chalk it up to a lot of times the things that we don't see are people explaining plot points that we're already aware of. Right. But we don't watch the show for the plot points. Mm-hmm. We watch the show to watch the relationships. Yeah. And, you know, Mary and Lord Grantham talking about Mr. Pamuk. Well, I guess that does kind of happen. Or, you right. know, McGee, that, telling, right. McGee telling Lord Grantham about Pamuk. I would have been interested to see that. We right. rarely get it to was, see them have any actual It was enjoyable to see Mary and Lord Grantham yes. have that. We didn't just come in halfway through that scene. We saw the whole scene and, and it I, was worthwhile. And I would have loved to have watched Daisy explain to the Dowager Countess what had happened. She would have been so adorably awkward. I know. And the Dowager Countess would have been excessively imperious. Yeah. Anyway. 
The Dowager Countess tells Daisy she can't have been false to William because she was only his wife for a half an hour. Daisy explains how she led William on to give him something to live for, and the Dowager Countess says that it sounds as if Daisy loved William a great deal for doing that. So he would be happy at the end. And then Lord Grantham blunders in apologizing for keeping her waiting, and then Daisy immediately clans up and leaves because that's what she's supposed to do. She's supposed to not speak courtesy and then get the hell out of there. Right. Then he snarks that Daisy shouldn't have been in that room at that hour. Thomas should have been on duty. Yeah. Well, because what he asks what she was doing there, and Dowager Countess says she was setting the fire and suffering, and he just says he should, she shouldn't have been here at this hour. She's scheduled for suffering from 10 to 10.45 every other Thursday. <laughs> the Dowager Countess says that she doesn't need him to tell her the world is falling down around their ears and wants to know if there's any news on Bates, but he says not yet. Murray is meeting with the Home Secretary that afternoon, so wow. either he dispensed with writing a letter or the letter was successful. Yeah. The Dowager Countess again expresses surprise that there is very little about the case in the papers and nothing about Lord Grantham, which... Didn't we already go over this? Sir Richard Carlyle is suppressing it. Yeah. Like, you already identified the source of there not being anything in the newspapers. Like, this is the least difficult to solve mystery Even if nobody ever. mentioned it, I would be like, oh, yeah, he does, like, work with newspapers. <laughs> right. Yeah. The Dowager Countess reveals that she wants to meet with him to talk about Rosamond and Jinxie and whether a woman of Rosamond's age is entitled to marry a fortune hunter. Lord Grantham pretty much thinks so, but for God's sake, let's tie up the money. Yes. That's not going to lead to years of sorrow and heartbreak for a future generation. Yeah. By all means, Did place you, complicated encumbrances on your fortune. Are you replicants of the people who were <laughs> present for the first series? Because you're all acting so strangely. No. I mean, I see what he's saying. Right. I mean, this is a slightly different situation. It, it, yeah, yeah. And I don't trust Jinxie any farther than I could throw his oily hide. <laughs> but uh, anyway... Lord Grantham is extra perturbed because Isis has gone missing. Wow. Lord Grantham just beset by woes. <laughs> because let's just review here. <laughs> War. Mm-hmm. Murder trial. Yes. Daughter marrying an Irishman. Missing dog. Made in room at wrong time. <laughs> all completely equal. Yeah, indeed. Where is Isis, you ask? We cut to Isis in the woods with Thomas, who is lighting a cigarette. Just in case you thought stealing a dog to make up for the fact that you stole a bunch of other stuff wasn't evil. He's uh, he's definitely evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, we then see him shutting Isis up in a shed. I am angry. <laughs> oh, my God. You don't put that dog in a shed. She's the reincarnation of Cleopatra, for God's sake. No one puts... Just like Roseanne Barr. No one puts Isis in a corner. <sighs> Thomas does. Yeah. You are the opposite of Patrick Swayze and Dirty Dancing, Thomas. <laughs> here, here. I wouldn't carry a watermelon for you. No way, no how. <laughs> Neither would O'Brien. True. So Anna's visiting Bates because apparently, again, she no longer has a job. Yeah. Just not important. He asks if she'll stay on at Downton, and she thinks that they probably won't let her as the wife of a murderer. He also says that Anna has some money because they're married and she will get the money that he gave to Vera, which then reverted back to him when she was dead. But he he thinks she should be able to access it Mm -hmm. when he is dead. And uh, Bates wants Anna to thank Lord Grantham and not hold anything against Mrs. Hughes and O'Brien. And Anna is very much not willing to kind of let this go. He Mm -hmm. insists. And in this case, I... (laughs) 
Boy, it sure took Bates being condemned to die for me to agree with him on anything. Yeah. But, you know, it wasn't their fault, and, and they would yeah. have been goaded into giving those answers. Right. I mean, Anna clearly does not have a very solid grasp on the legal system in general. Mm-hmm. So, Anna, Well, and she's entitled to a certain amount of her irrationality. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. She also says she's not sorry that they got married and she'd do it all over again. Bates isn't sorry either because it is better to have loved and been condemned to die than to never love at all. <laughs> They go to hold each other's hands, and the guard barks, No touching! Who, who, by the way, we did see earlier, there was just a cutaway to him, like, giving him this weird side eye yeah. that just made me laugh. He's like, shake and do better, mate. <laughs> That's not how you talk in York, but... In this version of Downton Abbey, the role of the guard is played by Bill Sykes from Charles Dickens' classic Oliver Twist. <laughs> then the guard implausibly relents and says it's fine. Because Bates reminds him that he's, you know, going to die. Right. So maybe they, the guard could chill out and, you know, let them have a little pre-mortem snuggling. Right. I still so, don't buy that the guard would right. let them. Because you're about to die, so that means there's no chance that this would be part of a escape attempt. Yeah. Like, there's a reason for the no-touching rule. She smuggled a file in her vagina. Well, he's not touching her vagina. You don't know that. Well, maybe after the scene ends. Uh, anyway... Anna and Bates kiss, and it's gross because Bates' face looks like a wilting cabbage. <laughs> Sorry, Dame Phoenix. <laughs> it's, it's not his best angle. It's really a terrible angle. He's all jowly and creepy. He looks like a basset hound, but with a short face, a pug face. No. Downstairs, the servants are still playing planchette. Because they still haven't gotten cable. They, they can't get enough of it. Mrs. Patmore butts in to have a turn because... She's hatched a scheme. Oh, dear. Yes. She uh, manipulates the board. So that it says, <laughs> Which is hard to spell. We know. We've had to spell it on occasion. Um, but it says something highly specific about, hey, Daisy, go see William's dad on his farm or something like that. To which Miss Shore asks O'Brien, is it usually so specific? And O'Brien says that it isn't. And it's actually a very enjoyable little exchange yes. between two not particularly enjoyable people. But I, <laughs> I, did, I did like that. Which brings us to one of our recurring segments with our very own spirit guide. <laughs> Everybody, please get ready for Tom Repeats History. Okay. Uh, yes, yeah, so I will be talking a little bit about spiritualism in general. Ooh. Yes. Uh, spiritualism, which is separate from the occult. So, which is another very interesting subject that I won't be getting into, but spiritualism, actually, Wikipedia, I I really enjoyed the way they summed it up, which it says, is a collection of beliefs holding as a postulate that the spirits of the dead have both the ability and the inclination to communicate with the living. (laughs) Yeah, when I die, I'm not talking to any of you people. (laughs) That's right. But, I mean, it's a very, you know, broad, there are various organizations and churches, are and were, but in general, it was everybody pretty much sort of formed their own beliefs about what the spirit world consisted of and what it means for your life and how to communicate and all these things. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was very wide-ranging. It originated in the 1840s in western New York, where a lot of religions originated, uh, Mormonism, various revivals. Uh, well, there was freedom of religion. So. Right, yeah. But in 1848, the Fox sisters, who were 12 and 15 years old at the time, began claiming to communicate with spirits by the mechanism of the spirits making rapping noises. One thing that's a little bit interesting about that is that's four years after the introduction of the telegraph. 
which was a way of communicating via essentially mm-hmm. rapping noises. And so that idea was sort of out there and got, uh, you know, that's, that's sort of what made it so readily picked up by mm-hmm. everybody and so popular. So everybody was just assuming that the ghosts had always been communicating in this way. We simply didn't have the technology to understand it. Right. Or just we weren't used to thinking of sort of a, that type of code, okay. essentially. That was just sort of interesting. And they became huge celebrities and toured all over the place for decades. In 1888, one of the sisters, Margaret, confessed that it was all a hoax. It had started off, they lived in a house that was said to be haunted, and their mother was very upset by it. So they would, like, go upstairs and, like, hit the floor with an apple, she said, to make noises that her mother would think was Uh the ghost. And she would, like, ask it questions, and they would answer with the apple. And it was all very hilarious to them. Uh, It's hilarious to me. Yes. And they eventually, actually, what they eventually worked out, and I don't quite know exactly how it worked, but they would basically, like, crack the knuckles in their toes. And they sort of figured out how to do that kind of loudly. And so that was what they would use to produce the rapping noises at all their exhibitions and seances. That's crazy. Yeah. They must have had some severe arthritis. One would think. Yes. I'm cracking um, my toes right now, by the way. <laughs> and it's, it's not a ghost. Right. <laughs> but naturally, her confession changed nobody's mind. Everybody pretty much just kept on believing. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. Years later, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, who I'll talk a little bit about more, decided that he basically decided that it must have meant that these spirits were communicating through them without their knowledge so that they <laughs> thought they were faking it. But really, it was real. That seems like a tall order for the spirits. It it was. In any case, it was a big movement. It had taken off and spread all over. Uh, it spread throughout the world, but America and Britain were always the biggest centers of it. And one of the big things, particularly in the early years, was that it was the first venue through which women could get public notice. I mean, the Fox sisters were going around, being on stage in front of large audiences, and this just never happened before. You know... The first way in which people were willing to accept women on stage was if they were just vessels by which other beings were communicating through them. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, I mean, you know, to what extent they fooled themselves, to what extent it was uh, conscious deception. But if they wanted, if they had things they wanted to say and ways they wanted to express themselves, they, they had found a way that they could, you know, through the medium of communicating with the dead. Uh, and it was generally associated with pretty liberal progressive people, uh, suffrage and abolition. Spiritualists were generally in favor of these uh, forward-thinking progressive mm-hmm. movements. Although by no means, you know, the Venn diagram, there were many suffragists and abolitionists that were not part of that. Frederick Douglass was a very noticeable skeptic uh-huh. of all this stuff. Good for him. Yes. But yeah, women were big in it throughout the Fox Sisters, of course. Uh, Cora L.V. Scott is another one who was very popular, very attractive, by the way. That was a big part of her appeal. Mm-hmm. And I've seen a photograph. I was like, oh, yeah, that's a pretty attractive Victorian lady. Oxa Sprague. And uh, Mary Todd Lincoln, after the death of, you know, everyone. <laughs> yeah. You know, first her kids and then her husband became a big spiritualist. And so she was another sort well, of... Well, she was also also schizophrenic, right? Like, that's got to help. I mean, she had she had many problems. There's no doubt about it. But that also gets to another key thing with spiritualism, which is that it tended to be very tied up with times of war and mm-hmm. death, which is why in Downton Abbey, that was a big... Like, it was undergoing a big revival. It had sort of 
fallen out of favor in like around the turn of the century, but come World War One, it resurged. Well, and this also, I I was surprised on the first time I watched this at how readily everybody seemed to agree that the spirits were there and were, mm-hmm. you know, there was a, ma- a certain amount of skepticism. Oh, you know, you're pushing it, you're pushing it, kind of thing going on with the planchette. Right. But they all then pretty much would have thought it was true. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, if it was something that well, was widely accepted in even intellectual circles, not that there weren't naysayers, but just that it was a big thing. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it's it's accepted to this day. In 1994, somewhere in America, I forget where, but a murder conviction was overturned when it was discovered that four of the jurors had had a Ouija board session, called up the spirit of the murder victim, and the murder victim's spirit through the Ouija board had identified the defendant. What? Yes. That is ridiculous. It is. I mean, it's good that they overturned it. Yeah, they did. But Um, come on, jury. Step it up. (laughs) Yeah. The Ouija board, it was actually uh, similar things had been around uh, in China going back as far as anybody knows Mm -hmm. and and other places. But it was popularized by Elijah Bond, who patented it. Um, It's the patent that Hasbro Mm-hmm. has to this day was originated by elijah bond and it was generally just sort of like a parlor game and nobody really thought of it as a method of communication until pearl curran uh, i believe in 1914 who was uh, american i think from colorado who claimed that she was using her ouija board to communicate with patience worth a 200 year old peasant woman originally from dorsetshire and she wound up actually writing a bunch of plays and novels which she claimed were all written by Patience Worth and dictated to her through this Ouija board. Mm-hmm. And the novels, by the way, at the time were widely hailed as extremely good, well-written and like works of literature, but because of their association with an eventually discredited you know, means of production – Nobody wanted to praise them anymore, and so they're completely out of print. And you know, wow, that's strange. Yeah, so I'm actually really sort of interested in what they were like. And yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Elijah Bond patented the Ouija board and and spent much of his life defending that patent. Uh, I mean, because really, basically, all he had patented was the name, but the name was extremely popular, and everybody wanted to use it, so he was always defending that and selling it. This is just a funny tangent. Uh, for a while in the United States, he had a company selling a Ouija board with the retroactively unfortunate name of the Swastika Novelty Company. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. Because, of course, that was just right, an right. occult symbol. Yeah, and in the time of Downton Abbey, one of the leading spiritualists was, as I mentioned, Arthur Conan Doyle, making his second appearance in Tom Repeat's history. He became a spiritualist, like many people, after the death of his family members. His wife died in 1906. And then his son at the very end of World War One of pneumonia. Um, and he became a big spiritualist and he believed in the Cotsdale fairies, a photograph of children with fairies. Yeah, they, they did that movie about them. Yeah. I can't remember what it was called. Yeah. But which were uh, widely believed and then decades later, later proved right. as a hoax. But he was definitely. But people a still believe in them. in them to this day. Oh, I'm sure they do. They believe the revelation of the hoax was itself a hoax. Mm-hmm. But he was he was a big spiritualist, and he actually he had been friends with Harry Houdini. But Harry Houdini spent much of his time debunking spiritualists. He mm-hmm. was like sort of a forerunner of the sort of the skeptic society yes. and, and people who do that sort of thing. Well, it's not surprising. I right. mean, even in as far as he was, you know, doing these sort of illusions. Mm-hmm. But I mean, for him, in a lot of cases, it was you know it was skill and it was endurance. Right. 
Well, I mean, he had the knowledge to debunk these people, and they were also competitors with him. Because ultimately, these were basically, they weren't marketed as entertainment, but they were filling the niche of entertainment that he was also filling. So Doyle and Houdini were friends for a long time, but Doyle eventually broke off the friendship, or the two of them broke it off, because in Doyle's view, Houdini refused to admit that he had supernatural powers. <laughs> he kept insisting that it was just an illusion, that it was just, you know, this stuff. Right, And right. it made Doyle mad because he was convinced that Houdini was using supernatural aids. So, yeah, it's a pretty interesting topic, and I wish I could get into the occult because that's a whole other thing. Right, that, right. Man, yeah, that's, that's what I've got for this week. All right. Well, thank you. That was fascinating. You're welcome. Back to Downton, Matthew has come up to the house to see Mary... And Lord Grantham comes in and interrupts Carson in the midst of his ushering Matthew to see Mary. And he basically just, like, snipes at Matthew, like, oh, you could have come earlier. We would have had dinner. <laughs> and Matthew's like, is something? Some up, dude, you see him? And so then Lord Grantham tells him about Isis having gone missing. And then Matthew says that they should have a search party with all the men servants so that they can apply some real method. Which Lord Grantham's like, oh, yeah, why didn't I think of that? Oh, because I'm an idiot. Yeah. It reminds me of that one episode of Daria when her dad and their boyfriends all go after that squirrel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Forget about the girls. We've got a hunting to do. Oh, there it is. <laughs> oh, there it is. <laughs> So we cut to the dudes, uh, plus Mary and Edith have tagged along. Uh, they're all trekking through the they woods. They are mannish, aren't they? <laughs> they are a bit. They're trekking through the woods looking for Isis. Uh, Mary worries that Isis has been stolen, and Edith says that it is a horrid thought. But true. Uh, right. Thomas spots the shed where he has hidden Isis and sort of just acts suspicious in front of Carson. Obviously, he can't just, like, go to the shed and open it and say, oh, here's Isis. How did I know to do that? I'm magic. Uh Uh-huh. So Lord Grantham says they're going to have to call it a night, but there is a 10-pound reward for anyone who finds Isis. Mary uh, says it's terrible, but Lord Grantham says maybe Isis is just trapped. They could still find her. Carson tells Thomas to run ahead and have Mrs. Patmore heat up some soup for the searchers. Thomas continues to act suspicious, which, again, I guess this is why his schemes always fail. (laughs) Yeah, because he's terrible at it. Mm -hmm. Mary asks Matthew why he came to the house, and he says that he wants to know why she said that she has to marry Carlisle and why Matthew would despise her if he knew the reason. He says, whatever it is, it can't be enough of a reason to marry that man. Not so bad. Mm -hmm. Um, And she says that that's what Papa said, thus spilling the beans that he knows what the dark secret is. Mm -hmm. And Matthew points out that he doesn't despise her. And so he insists that she tell him. And so we cut away. That's the end of the scene. Yeah, because we don't want to see Mary telling Matthew about this because I bet it's not interesting. The note I have written down is, Gah! Back downstairs, I believe, are in Mrs. Hughes's parlor. She is saying that you'd think the good Lord would have spared Lord Grantham the loss of his dog at a time like this. <laughs> so, again, war, murder trial, Irish-loving daughter, missing dog. Have I left anything out? Um, Probably a soup was cold or something. <laughs> I would think. Truly, not since Job has a man <laughs> suffered so greatly. Mrs. Hughes also wonders how uh, this has all been kept out of the papers and also suspects that that will change when Bates is hanged. 
She wonders how Anna will bear it, and Carson says she will just have to get used to some notoriety, as will Downton. Uh, whoopsie! <laughs> Anna was standing right outside the door the whole time, which maybe if you're going to have damning conversations about people, you might want to shut the frickin' door. Yeah. Also that grate that people can hear through. Yeah. Um, which, yeah, well, because he says that we will have to get used to notoriety, notoriety as the house that shelters her. Yeah. Like, once she, again, Mr. Carson, so sympathetic yeah. to every woman who's not married. And I had this written down later in the episode, but was he this much of a dick at the beginning of the series? No, he I wasn't. I don't think he was. He was he's a cheerful gotten, Charlie. Yeah, he's gotten like... They decided to make Mrs. Hughes sympathetic to everyone and make him be a jerk. And, yeah. you know, that wasn't the case before. Yeah, and I mean, it's not like... His character makes sense at the moment, mm-hmm. just as it made sense before. It's just unpleasant. Well, and I'm willing to believe that Mrs. Hughes would be a bit of a softer touch after everything she's been through, sort of with Ethel. Right. But I, I don't understand why Carson's gotten so recalcitrant. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Once again, ours is not to reason why. <laughs> yes. Anyway, Anna comes in and says she'll put Mr. Carson out of his misery by handing in her notice and moving to Scotland or London so the story can die down. Carson says she has a point, but Mrs. Hughes refuses to accept Anna's notice and that this is the correct solution. Although it's a, not a bad solution because honestly, you know, do you want to be Anna yeah. working at Downton, having to walk in on these conversations all the time? Because frankly, you know, Bates is a servant. I don't think it'll be that much of a big deal for you know, the family particularly, yeah. you know, you yeah. can always kind of retcon and be like, Oh, he's a, you know, he seemed so, you know, he was a quiet one. It's always the quiet one. Yeah. Yeah. And even the servants, you know, may let it die down a bit, but you know, it seems more likely that they'll care more, you know, about Anna. Yeah. And Anna's going to be in more of a position to walk in on them talking about it than the upstairs people. Yeah. And it's not like Thomas is ever going to stop being a dick about it. Yeah, that's so. true. So we cut to outside where, <laughs> Matthew was so shocked and angry about Mary's revelation that we didn't see... It was off screen. Yes. That he is walking away from her. And she asks him to say something, even if it's only goodbye. He wants to know if Mary loved Pamuk, but she says it was merely lust. And she says that she's... uh, That he can't love her now. She's Tess of the D'Urbervilles to his... Angel something. Angel Claire, I think. Angel Claire. read that book but i, I mean i think it. she's basically just saying the edwardian equivalent of i was a total samantha <laughs> and you're a steve it'll never work <laughs> right and matthew says not to joke about it while he's trying to understand which that was an illusion yeah not, not a, a joke not a joke like that's a piece of that's in the canon right that can't be funny <laughs> yeah i Look, dare you to make a test of the turbervilles <laughs> joke if there's one thing i remember about test of the turbervilles no joking <laughs> more like mess of the turbervilles <laughs> hey now that's a joke zing <laughs> boom matthew <laughs> don't quit your day job oh wait you already did i guess <laughs> Never officially, but he doesn't seem to go there anymore. No, he works less than the servants. <laughs> yeah. But Matthew says that no matter what, she mustn't marry Carlisle, because he's so evil, and that she can weather the storm. She's the strongest storm weatherer he knows. Though she says that Sybil's the strong one, because Sybil really doesn't care what people think, and Mary's not sure that she does. And that's an astute observation, I think. It is. Well, I mean, because I think Mary is saying, like, oh, you know, we'll stand by you. And Mary's like, yeah, but everybody else will be mean to me. And that, like, that would mm-hmm. be horrible. Regardless- she's, already, she's already dealt with that. Yeah, like, that's just, that's an awful position to be in, and she's not sure she can take mm-hmm. it. 
She tells Matthew about Lord Grantham's suggestion that she go to New York with Grandmama, and Matthew says that she'll be looking for some ignorant millionaire. Who's a cowboy! (laughs) Right. Or at least one that doesn't read English newspapers, says Mary, which, a helpful hint, Mary, nobody reads English newspapers in America. Nope. We don't care. We're very provincial. She wants much more than this provincial life. (laughs) Yeehaw! (laughs) Y'all. Chili. Yes. Cornbread. <laughs> that, that is America. Horses, 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 horses. I could keep going. You're just going to have to cut me off. <laughs> Mary or Matthew continues to uh, pitch this whole ditching Carlisle plan. Uh, Mary says that Carlisle and Jinxie are coming back for the servant's ball, which may not be happening, as we've previously discussed. Matthew says that Mary was wrong about one thing. And she says, oh, only one. And he says that... He doesn't despise her, that he never could despise her. No. Yes. Very sweet. Back downstairs, uh, O'Brien asks Thomas if he's just going to leave poor Isis out in the shed all night. And he says he couldn't explain it if he went back and found her so late. She tells him to just get out there as soon as possible and pray that nothing's happened. Which, when was he going to go bring her back? Like, well, I think he assumed, because if Matthew hadn't shown up, then Lord Grantham would have just gone to bed, and there would have been plenty of time through the evening. That's true. I think that's where he got messed up. Yeah. Yeah, she says to pray for his own sake, which I guess just sort of like for his soul's sake, because really if something happens to Isis, nobody's ever going to know to blame Thomas for it. Maybe. Maybe yeah. not. He is. He was acting really suspicious. That's true. That's true. In any case, Daisy is talking to Mrs. Patmore, and... The Ouija board scam totally sold her. Oh, dumb, stupid, stupid Daisy. That that William wants her to go visit his dad, and she says, uh, she asks Mrs. Patmore if she thinks she should, and Mrs. Patmore wisely does not say, I've been saying that for weeks, but just says, oh, yeah, I guess so, I guess so. So Daisy's convinced that she should do it. And Mrs. Patmore, I mean, I know it was only Daisy, but nice scheming. Mm-hmm. Expertly done. Uh, you are already one ahead of Thomas. <laughs> yes. The following day, Thomas gets to the shed, which has been unlocked, so he flips out. What a fool. Yeah. Isis is clearly a master of escape. Yeah. Stephen Queen's character from The Great Escape, based on Isis. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, whenever she misbehaves, Lord Grantham's like, Kula! And then she just throws a baseball at the wall until it's time to go. <laughs> she doesn't even have thumbs. Yeah, she rides a motorcycle. <laughs> Another spinoff I want to see. Isis's Great Escape. <laughs> yeah. Bum, bum. <laughs> no. <laughs> Coming soon to a podcast near you. <laughs> Next we have Daisy wandering across the moors. In a scene from Wuthering Heights or possibly the Secret Garden. Things with moors is yeah. what we're saying. I couldn't even tell it was her at first. No, I know. It looked like... I, th- I thought they had just, like, pulled some random BBC <laughs> period drama stock footage. They're like, I just get a woman on a moor. <laughs> They're like, listen, we have 3,000 hours of women ro- walking across moors in the BBC archives. You'd narrow it down more if you said to put in a shot of the doctor and the TARDIS. <laughs> Thomas is running around the woods, yelling for Isis, looking super Christian Bale-esque in a way that he hasn't in quite a while. Yeah. Then he rolls on the ground and calls her a bloody, stupid dog. Like, what? 
this is not effective. Did you fall down on purpose? This scene yeah. is clearly meant to display Thomas's ineffectualism <laughs> and frustration. Yeah. Because he can't find ISIS. But I'm like, come on. Like, you don't just fall down. Agreed. I mean, I do occasionally. <laughs> but I suspect I have an inner ear imbalance. <laughs> Could be. Maybe Thomas does. Probably. Maybe it's he's... a complication from that hand injury. <laughs> <laughs> we then cut to Casa de Mason. Where uh, Daisy is finally talking to Mr. Mason. He's laying out T4 and she says he shouldn't have gone to so much trouble since she was only married to William for a few hours. Uh, Mr. Mason says that Daisy may not know that William had a brother and three sisters, all of whom died at birth or shortly after. So, Lord Grantham, by all means, keep complaining about your hardships. A war, (laughs) a murder trial, his daughter married an Irishman, his dog went missing, and probably he's got a hangnail. (laughs) Probably true. Mr. Mason thinks that that is probably one reason that William married Daisy, so that Mr. Mason would not be alone and without someone to pray for, which is just a very... Beautiful and touching way to put it. Yes. About how he's alone in the world to to have someone to pray for. And he asks if Daisy will be his daughter in dialogue that sounds really creepy, but is totally not. Because the guy who plays Mr. Mason is possibly the best actor on the whole show because he's been given an impossible task. Yeah. And again, I mean, you add it all up. He's had maybe 10 minutes of screen time and he's... Made a huge impression. Yeah, absolutely. And he says, of course, you've got parents of your own. And Daisy says that she doesn't, not like that, and that she's never been special to anyone. And he says, except for William. And she says, oh, I guess I was special to him. I never thought about it like that. And is very emotional. Yes, I definitely was crying pretty hard. Yeah. Pretty hard. Yeah. Well, because, you know, somebody's finally been able to contextualize her relationship with William in a way that makes her feel good. Yeah. Because it wasn't enough for her to be hearing, oh, you know, you made him happy. Right. It needed to be put in a way that, you know, she was getting something out of it too somehow, which sounds more selfish than it is. Well, I mean, her and Mr. Mason, a still living person who, who, who isn't, you know, dead and, and I don't know, just the fact that it's Mr. Mason makes a difference to her. Well, it's his, you know, it's William's dad and he's finally kind of putting this all in terms that aren't so much about William and then about right. it's about him. Right. He's finally saying, This is important to me. You know, it was William that brought us together. Yeah. But, you know, I want to have this relationship with you because we've both kind of lost everything here. Right, right. Uh, we cut back to Thomas, who looks a fright. He does. Uh, he's coming up the path to Downton, and Isis bounds up to him. Uh, so clearly she's forgiven him for dog napping her. Like mm-hmm. if I was a dog, like I've met some rescue dogs yeah. in my time. And it, granted, you know, Thomas wasn't mean to her or hit her or anything. Right. But I think I'd balk a little bit yeah. before approaching the smell that trapped me in a shed. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Lord Grantham comes out and sees him and reveals that a village child found her in the shed, brought her back, and presumably collected the 10 pounds, which her father probably stole to spend on alcohol. Well, and then Lord Grantham did have the child flogged for trespassing in his shed. Yes. But. Lord Grantham wants to know why Thomas looks so terrible, and Thomas says, oh, we'd been out looking for ISIS. Because he he misrepresented himself as having found her, because he didn't know Mm. about the 
development. Anyway, apparently Thomas, having gotten dirty looking for the dog, has reaffirmed Lord Grantham's faith in human decency. Boy, are you barking up the wrong tree, Lord Grantham. Yeah, it's like, you do remember that 10-pound reward that you offered. Like, perhaps, even even not knowing that Thomas is evil, could he not perhaps been motivated by the reward? And how did she go missing in the first place? Yeah. Dogs don't just get into sheds. They don't have thumbs, despite Isis being amazing. Yeah, and also, why are you wearing that hat? Yeah. That was... That's a real Mr. Collins hat. Yeah. It's like, oh, I'm sorry. Is there a parsonage you're trying to uh, inherit or something? (laughs) Daisy is walking with Mr. Mason, who is hitching up his uh, horse and wagon. She's insisting that she could walk back to the station. She walked to his farm. But Mr. Mason says that he'd rather drive her so that they can talk. He also tells her to stop sulking around and actually explain to Mrs. Patmore why she deserves a raise like an adult. And for goodness sake, to stop listening to Miss Shore. Yes. Hear, hear. And that's that's great. It's the first good advice Daisy's ever been given. It's true. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. And it's really absolutely solid parental advice. Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Agreed. In the hall or the stairway or whatever of Downton, Jinxie walks in. He's looking at his pocket watch. He's late! He's late! For a very important date! <laughs> it's true. Rosamond comes down the stairs... She's wearing a really beautiful dress in this scene. It's got, like, illusion netting sleeves and a gold brocade bodice. It's the best thing I've seen her wear all series long. Yeah. And she greets Jinxie by saying, are you here? Which is the dumbest question that you can possibly ask somebody in any case. And he says, yes, he's going to have to scramble to change. Rosamond says that the visit may be a bit gloomy as the servant's ball has been canceled. Which, hey, do all the servants have to suffer I agree. Because, I mean, like, they only get one servant's ball a year, I'm imagining. Yes. So. My other question is, isn't the servant's ball kind of depressing anyway as it continues to highlight the (laughs) gaping maw between the classes and the fact that they get one day a year to, like, kick back? No. In any case, uh, servant's ball or no, Chinksy's flattered to have been invited back regardless and wants to know if he can read anything into the invitation. Between the lines, like. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Rosamond says that she just didn't want to lose her maid, Miss Shore, who kept nagging her to invite Jinxie back. Yeah, she kept saying, we want Jinxie, (laughs) precious. Jinxie. Yes. She needs a lock of his hair for some sort of enchantment. Anna's helping Mary uh, get dressed up in a room and asks what Mary will do in America. Mary replies that she'll do the same things that she does in England, go on calls and go to dinners, which remember way back when... When Edith accused Mary of not reading, and Mary said, I have a life. (laughs) That is a boring-ass life, Mary. And you're going to America. You could do way better, like be a burlesque dancer or something. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, Anna asks if she could come with Mary because, you know, she needs to leave Downton, and Mm -hmm. Mary's leaving Downton, and it sounds like a great proposition for everyone. Mm -hmm. Mary says, of course she can. She didn't even need to ask, which I think she did. Like, were you planning to take her with you? (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, the important thing is that made-to-order... Our sitcom featuring Mary, Anna, and I guess Edith, now that Sybil's gone, yeah. being fancy bachelorettes in an apartment in a high-rise somewhere. Oh, man. Two-thirds complete. We're almost there. Very exciting. That now brings us to another exciting thing, our favorite recurring segment, in which our very own calling card correspondent, Kelly, will tell us a little bit about fashion of the time with fashion backwards. All right, everybody. Hold on to your butts, <laughs> because this is so complicated. It's right. like nearly two single-spaced typed pages oh to explain this. 
I was going to even talk about, because Mary made reference to Grandmama having houses in New York and Newport. Mm. Newport being the big resort town, Newport, Rhode Island, uh, which was essentially kickstarted by Mrs. J.J. Astor, who you may recall from various incarnations of the Titanic legend. Mm-hmm. She basically made Newport, Rhode Island what it was. It was just basically the entire New York summer season happened there. But there was so much information about that, we could only focus on a few things. Some minor things that Mary is going to have to adjust to in America. First of all, balls in America. Different from balls. (laughs) Balls. (laughs) (laughs) Like dancing balls. Sorry, carry on. (laughs) I don't think that made it any better. (laughs) So balls were not held in the home in America by the 1890s. It was quite out of fashion. Hmm. And most people would generally host private balls in Sherry's or Delmonico's, which were restaurants of the day. And then when a ball was held in the home, guests merely greeted their hostess and circulated throughout the room before the dancing commenced. Usually a supper was provided. However, in both uh, American English society, as the Edwardian era pressed on, the Cinderella dance came into favor because it was much cheaper. It only begun at 8 o'clock and ended at midnight, and only claret, coffee, tea, and biscuits were provided. So it was mm. a much lighter social thing, mm-hmm. more of a reception than a, you know, a full-out dinner right. and everything. There's a difference in teas in America. High tea actually took the place of dinner on Sunday evenings in cities, and they were also considered dur- dinner in rural cities and the countryside throughout the rest of the week. Mm. And this was in part because in America, dinner was served at 8 o'clock versus 9 or 10 o'clock as it was in Britain. Mm. So it was silly to have a high tea, which is often referred to as a meat tea, where there would basically, you know, you'd have a full meal, sort of like cold cuts uh, and things like that. But in America, the American hostess would uh, greet her guests at the drawing room door. And then in the adjoining room, which is usually the dining room, there would be a table spread with a white cloth with a tea service and a chocolate service. There'd be flowers on the table. And then basically the only food would be uh, thin cut bread and butter, cake, strawberries, and, you know, of course, uh, tea. That that all sounds pretty great. Tea. Uh, but that's sort of where you get the sort of idea of the sort of like the dainty tea party with mm-hmm. a lot of cakes yeah. and things like that is actually more of an American thing. Hmm. I did find out that in the summertime, a bowl of ice was included on the table because Americans loved iced tea, which to the Brits, at least at that time period, was totally, you know, a no-no. Mm-hmm. You don't drink iced tea. Mm-hmm. So now we come to the issue of paying calls. Okay. In England, this was a very rigid process by which you were vetted to be included in a certain social circle. It was begun in the Victorian era to contain society against these social climbers. It provided assurance that if your domestic and sexual reputation were unassailable and your income above a certain level, you were permitted entry into a group of acquaintances with whom you could mix freely without feelings of social unease or constraint. That came from Evangeline Holland of Edwardian Promenade. That is where I have gotten all of this information today. Okay. And a leading etiquette expert named uh, Lady Colin Campbell said, you could not invite people to your home, however often you may have met them elsewhere, until you have first called upon them in a formal manner and they have returned the visit. Okay. So to that end, people would obtain a calling card. It would list their name and their address. Sometimes women would share a card with their husband saying, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. A young unmarried woman would have a card that listed her mother's name above her own. Hmm. Okay. Uh, you know, so right. people were like, who is this? You know, who's this Miss Bellingham? <laughs> yeah. I know a Mrs. Bellingham, but Miss, bah, out of my sight. 
Have this card burned. Exactly. So the calls general, uh, there were several other methods of etiquette depending on sort of what you wanted from someone. Okay. But this is just sort of an overview. Okay. Referred to as the calls general. So you leave a card at the home of a prospective acquaintance. So after you were introduced to them somewhere, a formal visit was expected to be returned within three or four days. Okay. After a dinner or a ball, it was definitely necessary to call or at least leave cards at the door if they weren't home within a few next days. And you couldn't call anyone before luncheon. You could only visit between 3 and 6 o'clock p.m. Hmm. Uh, if you showed up before lunch, you would definitely not be considered a, a candidate for acquaintance. Right, yeah. Uh, you would be thought of as extremely gauche. Yeah. Now, when you were leaving your calling card, a lady would leave her own and two of her husbands, one for the lady of the house, one for the husband. Just, you know, she was acting sort of as a social lubricant for the couple. Mm-hmm. And then when leaving her husband's card, she would put them on the hall table. And if the lady of the house wasn't there, when the leaver called, uh, she would turn one corner of the husband's card down, which signified that she had called personally. I'm not sure how you would just send a card without going there yourself if you wouldn't just send it by post. Well, you could send a servant out. Oh, I guess that's true. Yeah. But your servant could know. Well, but anyway, yeah. that was that was the, the basic mm-hmm. idea. Now, if a lady progressed past the stage of leaving cards and was invited to visit a, a hostess at home, the pressure went way up. She was on display for the hostess, but also the social circle of the hostess, which meant she had to impress everybody yeah. at, the, at the visit. Mm-hmm. And she only had 15 minutes to do it in. Oh, my. So when she got there, she'd give her card to the footman, who then handed it in at the door. If the mistress wanted to receive guests, because sometimes the mistress would be home and not receiving, then the lady would go in and be led to the drawing room where she'd be introduced and seated in the nearest vacant chair to the hostess. And then the question that was demanding to be answered uh, for the hostess and her friends is whether the newcomer makes people feel awkward. Mm. I mean, that was your highest social right. uh, requirement. Right. Things that could create awkwardness included a lack of required family background, a lack of wealth, though a good background did make up for poverty, mm-hmm. which explains why Lord Hepworth, a.k.a. Jinxie, yeah. is still permitted to be traveling in these circles. Yeah. A lack of assurance, lack of an acceptable moral reputation, and most important, the lack of ability to conform to the group's social demands. Mm. So already we can tell that Mary has disqualified herself through her moral reputation. Indeed. Sybil has probably screwed herself up in terms of her moral reputation and also her ability to conform to the group's social demands. And it seems pretty awkward. Yes. And Edith has no assurance. So it's a goddamn miracle (laughs) that any of the Crawley girls are accepted anywhere. Yeah. So in order to be totally accepted by her hostess and her new group of friends, a woman had to prove that she lacked nothing in all five of those, those criteria. And to fail only one would be a red flag. So, you know, they weren't willing to completely write you off, but then they would also look at and see how you comported yourself. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, did you have a pleasant voice? Did you speak correctly? For example, if you were talking about your dad, you would have to say my father versus referring to him informally as father. Uh, Okay, yeah. Whether she gushes, whether she wears the right clothing, if she gestures too much with her hands, and most importantly, did she carry herself with a poise that proclaims her a potential member of the circle as of right? So if it all went off without a hitch and the woman impressed the hostess and her friends. Uh, further calls were made and returned and soon if she continued to be correct mm-hmm. and also kind of passed the test among the friends of the hostess, she might be invited to tea and then if that went well, she would be invited to a ball 
or a visit to an opera box. And then finally, the creme de la creme would be an invitation to a dinner party. Okay. So it was very complicated, and I don't blame Downton Abbey for not getting into the nitty-gritty about it, because it is extremely complicated. Yeah. Because I'm even... I've read through all this, and I still don't understand exactly Mm -hmm. how it works. Yeah. Uh, But, I mean, you know, my basic understanding is you meet someone at at a social function... Or a friend of yours makes an introduction, you right. know, by way of post. And then, you know, you start this dance and, you know, you hope you don't screw anything up and you can secure a good place in society. Yeah. No, I mean, it's way easier these days because you just have to friend somebody on Facebook. It's true. And not poke them too much. Yeah. Then you never have to talk to them again. <laughs> now, the concept of paying calls and leaving cards was quite difficult in America. The cities were too large to do it and the villages uh the population of the villages would change too quickly Hmm. for this sort of long vetting process to have any effect right so uh the original practice was that you would call once or twice a year on all of your friends with the hope of finding at least two or three at home and then as society in cities such as new york grew that became impossible because Mm -hmm. there were too many friends to visit in in one fell swoop like that And so the first solution was to establish a reception day, which held good all winter. But then quickly they abandoned that and narrowed it down to four Tuesdays, maybe in one month. And then that turned into one or two five o'clock teas, like in a year. (laughs) All right. So basically to circumvent the changes that would prohibit a woman from making calls or having reception days, one card a year was left at the door or one sent in an envelope. And that kind of kept up people's acquaintances. So, I mean, it Mm -hmm. was the equivalent of writing on someone's Facebook wall or sending a message and just being like, hey, we are Facebook friends. Yeah. But I, I know you and I want to hang out with you still. Yeah. But yeah, I found that interesting that it was, you know, basically the decentralization of Britain and its relatively sparse population at the time that made this system work. Well, and more stable because I think because England came from this feudal situation, people, you couldn't just move. You know, Lord Grantham was the Earl of Grantham. He couldn't just decide he liked the weather better in the south of England or whatever. Well, and, you know, people's social status was a little more mutable in America. Mm -hmm. I mean... Mm -hmm. There was systemic oppression and and there were class divisions and everything, but it was more feasible for a self-made man, i.e. Richard Carlyle, to immediately be accepted Mm -hmm. by the upper crust. Because, you know, in America, it was considered that doing something like that was at least worth an entree. Yeah. I mean, you know, he would have to comport himself well, but, you know, he, he would have had an easier time of it than he would in Britain. Yeah. Or in England, really, because I have a feeling because we believe he's Scottish. And oh, that's true. I, I certainly my impression is, without having done much research, that Scotland was more not necessarily that they were more flexible in their class system, but that they were more appreciative of hard work and self madeness. Well, and there wouldn't have been as many members of the peerage in right, Scotland or right. Ireland. Yeah. So yeah, so that is uh, calling cards. If you want to infuriate your friends, try to explain that and implement it. (laughs) All right, thank you. Back at Downton Abbey, Lord Grantham tells Carson that he's decided that he would like to give Thomas a trial as valet. He feels that he may have misjudged him and it's time to give him a chance. I would point out at this point that Lord Grantham has known Thomas for 10 or 15 years and that seems to constitute a chance to me. He's given him many chances. Yeah. Notable about this scene uh, are Carson's eyebrows hitting the ceiling. (laughs) Yes. He can't believe it. Mary is looking at herself in the mirror as Anna is dressing her, and Anna 
announces that Sir Richard's back and asks if Mary is ready to dump him. Mary says she knows what she has to say. You know, she seems nervous, but she knows it has to be done. Isabel is talking to Matthew and saying that she wishes he would fight for Mary. Uh, and he says that, oh, Isabel wouldn't understand. And she says that you're goddamn right, I don't understand. And please don't bring up the name of that poor dead girl. America agrees. Yeah. Team Isabel. <laughs> That's right. And she, well, she doesn't storm off because she's classy, but she walks off. Purposefully. Yes. Downstairs, Anna's telling Mrs. Hughes about her plan to batch it up with Mary at America. And uh, Mrs. Hughes is very sorry she'll be leaving. Anna says it's only if and trails off. And then she cries really bad. Yeah. And Mrs. Hughes also tears up and tells Anna that she and Mr. Bates are very highly valued. And Anna just cries and cries and cries. And Mrs. Hughes hugs her. Yeah. Because she saw what happened the last time she didn't hug a housemaid. And bitch got pregnant. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she is very highly valued. She says by us. I'm like, well, not by Carson so yeah. much. Yeah. And oh, <laughs> yeah. No, it's just so rough seeing all this horrible things happen to Anna. And it's like. Why does Baron of Fellows love torturing her so damn much? I think he just likes to torture women. Like, you monster. Nobody treats Anna this badly except for you, Julian uh-huh. Fellows. Her and Edith. Just wait till we make made to order. Yeah. Cut to Carlisle reacting to Mary's off-screen dumptacular. <laughs> surprise, surprise. God forbid we see any of these characters explain themselves to anyone before we see one of them flying off the handle. Yeah. Carlisle gets mad because he bought her filthy scandal and kept Bates out of the paper, as if everyone didn't know. Like, are we talking about that? As if it's a big revelation? Right. Ugh. Carlisle tells her that the anti-scandal gravy train stops right now. <laughs> Matthew comes in, and for lack of a better word, he just looks like a twat. <laughs> I think we might just be saying that because we paused it, and he just looked like he was, like, yeah. puffing his chest out <laughs> we, we in his tuxedo. We to pause it, but yeah. <laughs> Carlisle says Matthew was a smiling villain or he something. Said, he says, ah, here he is, the man that can smile and smile and be a villain, which is a line from Hamlet. I thought it was from Shakespeare. Yeah. Well done, yeah. me, for yes. thinking. Which, and I'd just like to head Matthew off of the past there and say that that was not a joke. It was an illusion. <laughs> Who does he say that about in Hamlet? I don't remember. Probably Polonius. I feel like Polonius is involved. I feel like he gets the most smack talked about him. Yeah. Anyway... Carlisle then also says that Lavinia knew Matthew never loved her, which apparently she told Carlisle late one night, which seems a bit silly. Well, he explains. He says it was late. She was tired. I'd been shaking her all day. (laughs) No, again, I don't understand why Lavinia ever talked to Richard Carlisle. (laughs) Yeah. Matthew calls Carlisle a bastard and punches him. Um, Yeah. And I was expecting Lord Grantham to come in and say, please, the ladies have enough. Had had enough shocks for one day. Didn't you know my dog went missing? <laughs> uh, but he just comes in to break up the tussle, which well, is pretty he, funny. He uses his superpower. Lord Grantham's superpower is to end any situation by saying, stop this at once. Yes. Lord Grantham correctly ascertains that Mary has ditched him and tells Carlisle, or asks when Carlisle wants to go to the train in the morning, and then Carlisle bullies Lord Grantham for being so smooth. Yeah. Which... Has always been kind of a sticking point for Carlisle because he's not smooth, yeah. as we've seen yeah. on multiple occasions. And, you know, he wonders, you know, what Lord Grantham will do when something else When happens. When the scandal breaks and yeah. all that. And Lord Grantham says, oh, I hope I'm still smooth. Yeah. I've been practicing my whole life. <laughs> yeah. So the Dowager Countess comes in and asks what's been going on. And Sir Richard Carlisle informs her, I'm sorry, Lady Grantham, 
but I'm afraid you'll not be seeing me again. And she says, do you promise? And she's very coquettish for a woman of 179. <laughs> anyway, Carlisle storms out, and Matthew apologizes for breaking the vase. And the Dowager Countess, this is the part to me that is the best part of the scene. Yeah. She says, oh, no, 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 think nothing of it. It was a wedding present from a frightful aunt, and I've hated it for half a century. <laughs> Which is oh, wonderful. That's as, that's as close as she can get to. Thank you for punching that guy in the face. <laughs> yeah. The next morning, Mary comes down to see Carlisle off. She He is a bit surprised that she does so. Um, she says she wanted to say goodbye. And she sort of semi she apologizes if he feels used, you know. Boy, she really could be a corporate spokesperson. <laughs> yeah. Pop uh, Chips is probably looking for someone. <laughs> That's probably true. They should have done an ad with Mr. Pamuk. <laughs> You're right. That actor is probably available. I would imagine. Carlisle says that she just came down in an attempt to talk him out of, you know, revealing her scandal, which he says he would feel no guilt in doing. She says that she's her plan to, to go to the States the Big Apple, which she doesn't say. Mm-hmm. And he tells her that he did love her more than she knew and much more than she loved him. And it's it seems pretty, like, sincere. Mm-hmm. And she says that she hopes the next woman he loves deserves him more than she does. And one, one of the things she apologizes, she apologizes about is Haxby, since he's bought this house that's, you know, no good to him now. So he then he then makes a pretty dramatic exit uh, out the door, sort of lit by the sunlight and everything, and he says that not to worry about Haxby, he'll sell it at a profit. He usually does. Goodbye, you magnificent bastard. Yeah. Downton Abbey is poorer for having lost you. Yeah, it's kind of true. No, and I mean, I think that last scene really shows that Baron Fellows agrees that he's actually, he's not like a total villain. Well, and I just, you know, I have some issues with the fact that they were engaged for like... 11 million years <laughs> yeah. and you know i mean he would have had to have loved her f- to stick around that long and, yeah. and you know what with all the evidence of her and matthew still having the hots for each other and you know everything yeah, yeah. um like i'm not saying that they should have married each other because the, the you know clearly wasn't going to work right they weren't going to be happy but he was not a complete villain in this yeah. whole thing despite the lavinia shaking <laughs> yes. he mistook her for a baby yeah yeah, I would have to say out of all the guys on Downton Abbey, I would rather hook up with R- Richard Carlyle than uh, any of them. All right. Because I'm a pragmatist and I like fancy houses. Yeah, and also he's got a sweet ride. Mm-hmm. Or I guess uh, I guess that's Downton's ride, but it's a sweet ride regardless yeah. that he's, he's heading out on. I was impressed by that car. I'm just hoping that in season three, uh, Sir Richard takes up with Shirley MacLaine <laughs> so we haven't seen the last of him. <laughs> that would be exciting. Anna passes the whispering Shore and Jinxie in the hallway. Shore comes up to Anna and says, Jinxie still wants her to advocate to Lady Rosamond for him and says, you know men. And Anna darkly says, and I know women too. Which is, this is when Anna is great. When she's just like being awesome and like, Not you know, taking any bullshit from the servants. Seeing through people's attempts to deceive her. Mm-hmm. Like, where's that Anna? Less crying, more badassery. Yep. In the library, Lord and Lady Grantham are hanging out, like rich people do, when Carson bursts into the library with a telegram. The telegram says that Bates' sentence has been commuted to life in prison. Lord Grantham's like, oh, what a relief. And McGee says, go and fetch Anna. And Lord Grantham's like, who? <laughs> it's like, 
All, as far as Lord Grantham is concerned, his valet. Before you do that, Carson, can you take care of this blasted hangnail? <laughs> the whole family has assembled so Lord Grantham can tell Anna about Bates' reprieve. Anna's still pretty bummed as, you know, still yeah. life in prison. Right. Not to get any more of that sweet Bates loving. That's right. Uh, but Mary tells her not to focus on the negative, And Lord Grantham arranges for Pratt to run Anna into York. Because once again, she doesn't have to clean the house. Yes. Meanwhile, Carson announces to the downstairs staff the news. And the only thing that remains to tell them is the servant's ball is back on. Hooray! Yes. Uh, it's going to be a lot of work, but they can do it. <laughs> back at prison... Anna tells Bates that she'll stay on at Downton while he's alive. Anna is convinced that they'll be able to overturn the sentence. You know, she thinks maybe she can be of some help. Bates tells her that no matter what happens, she needs to make friends, have fun, and, and live life. She says she'll try. He doesn't accept that. And then she says she promises. Yeah. One of the few instances of them having a normal, healthy relationship where he's not, you know, telling her everything's going to fall to shit. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know what? This- Things have finally already fallen as much to shit as they can. Yeah. So maybe we're finally seeing the silver lining, Bates. <laughs> yeah. No, and this, I mean, this was the the most likable Bates I've seen. You know, this is like a glimpse of that, oh, yeah, I didn't originally despise him. Yeah, this is like first first... First episode, Bates crying in his room stuff. Yeah. In the library at Downton, Lord Grantham offers Matthew some whiskey. Against the ordeal they're about to face. Right. Which I would just like to remind you is dancing with the people who clean up their chamber pots. (laughs) Right. So that could be awkward. (laughs) Um, Matthew wonders who he should dance with. And Lord Grantham explains to the audience, because Matthew clearly would already know all this, that Cora and Carson will lead off and that the Dowager Countess will presumably we dance with thomas that would normally be bates's job but they actually dispense with that because of bates's infirmity mm, yes he can't dance don't ask him <laughs> he won't dance i'm singing yes and uh the lord grantham will be dancing with mrs hughes so matthew can dance with miss o'brien matthew wets his pants <laughs> yes she'll turn me to stone with a gorgon's bangs and well she might Lord Grantham says that Mary told him about Mr. Swire. Yeah, like a month ago? Yeah, like that what? Huh? Have you not talked to Matthew except when he's arranging search parties for your <laughs> stupid talk? Right. Um, so that was weird. And Matthew uh, just whines some more about Lavinia and what she, whatever and whatnot. And Lord Grantham is finally pushing to close the deal that he's been working all this time. Tells him that he did nothing to be ashamed of. He says... He says that if Lavinia had lived, he would have kept his word to her despite his feelings for Mary and that that's, you know, he would have done the right thing mm-hmm. and that he, so he shouldn't, he shouldn't feel bad. Then McGee comes in. She says, glug those drinks down, you two. It's time to start. <laughs> and she has the most terrifying expression. She's got this look of like elated happiness. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, nothing good has happened to anyone recently. <laughs> yeah. You didn't even like Bates. <laughs> it's true. Maybe that's why she had to explain that it was a time of grief and heartbreak <laughs> due to her frequent Bates hating. Yeah. There's dancing and live music. It's World War One all over again. <laughs> the Dowager Countess asks Mary if Anna's not going to America with her. And then Thomas comes over and asks for a dance with the Dowager Countess. Yeah, she says, okay, because it's a waltz. She's far too old for that dreadful foxtrot. And Thomas says, well, what about the black bottom? Now this... 
I think is actually a real mistake on Downton Abbey's part because I was I was researching the Black Bottom, which was a dance that originated. I thought it was just racist. <laughs> it may have been. I don't think so. I think it was a term for a geographical area. Uh-huh. But in any case, it did start in the American South, so I'm sure there was at least some racism involved. And and it started well before this. It started in the 1910s, but it wasn't popularized until it was in a Broadway number, or actually a Harlem musical called Dinah in 1924. Okay. Yeah, so that's so, well after this episode. That was when it became popular in New York, and I would think it would have taken even a bit longer after that to make mm-hmm. it to England. So I agree. I think, Fellows, yeah. you've got some explaining to do. I think we caught him on that one. Also... It's too bad it wasn't originated in Zip Goes a Million. (laughs) That's true. Isabel is just sitting there with some doddering old relic who we've never seen before. Yeah, it was weird. Maybe they're setting her up on a date. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, There's just some old man who's been rotting in a corner and they just bring him out for the servant's ball. (laughs) Anna spots Shore and Jinxie going upstairs and her expression tells us something's afoot. (laughs) Then we see Mrs. Patmore and Daisy there up at the ball. So I guess they have to dance with each other. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Uh, but they're having the discussion that Mr. Mason advised Daisy to have. Then Daisy just making Mrs. Patmore understand that she doesn't want to leave. She wants to be an assistant cook. And Mrs. Patmore says it's fine if the budget will stretch to it with her standard exasperation at everything Daisy <laughs> says. <laughs> right. But, you know, Mr. Mason was right. All Daisy had to do was ask, and Mrs. Patmore didn't really have a problem mm-hmm. with it. And it's great. And I only hope that the title of assistant cook comes with a new hairstyle. Yeah, Daisy just he... does not quite clean up the way the rest of the servants do. Yeah. And Mrs. Patmore's wearing a blouse in this scene that looks like a blouse I used to sell when I went to dress bar. <laughs> in that it looks like someone vomited on a blouse. <laughs> Upstairs, Rosamond says to Mary she hopes this isn't a joke. As she walks up to her room, Mary's there, as is Anna, and Mary's like, no, 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 it'd be a joke if I was referencing Tess of the Durbervilles. <laughs> Try to keep up. Uh, anyway, Anna opens the door where Jinxie and Shore are in the very most preliminary stages of getting it on. Yeah. He's wearing a robe, and she's still fully clothed. So, because he wasn't wearing a robe downstairs, right? That's so true. He's apparently come upstairs, changed out of all of his clothes put on a robe, and now they're getting started. Uh, they have a system talk. <laughs> Foreplay is very important to Jinxie. <laughs> As you can tell by the way, he's been stringing along Rosamond. Yeah. Rosamond actually, in this scene, you can totally see that she is the Dowager Countess's daughter mm. because she doesn't flinch. Yeah. She doesn't back down. Mm-hmm. Rosamond says, well, Jinxie first says, oh, it's not what it looks like, my darling. And she's like, is there room for misinterpretation? <laughs> Which is the Edwardian equivalent of bitch, please. Yeah. You know, Jinxie tries to explain. He's like, oh, I'm, I'm very fond of you. And uh, Shore's like, oh, seriously, shut up. Don't make yourself look ridiculous. <laughs> and uh, Rosamond says, yeah, listen to her. Maybe you should just marry her because her resourcefulness will make up for any social flaws. Mm. And apparently Shore has been giving this same line, thus feeding our presumption that Shore and Rosamond are the same person. <laughs> two bodies. That's They that, had two bodies, but only one brain! That's what Jinxie's excuse should have been. He should have been, I thought it was you! <laughs> anyway, Mary tells the two of them to get bent with the first train. <laughs> and uh, Shore's like, duh. 
Yeah, like, yeah. I've been caught naked with a dude I'm trying to scam <laughs> with before. I know how this works. Yeah. So they leave the room, and Rosamond's very upset. And Mary says, you know, don't be upset. You dodged a bullet. But she's actually upset because the Dowager Countess was proved right. Uh, yeah. She's so upset, she says, damn, and yeah. then apologizes. Well, she apologizes first. Yes. She says, I'm sorry, but damn, which is just great. Back at the ball, Anna approaches Lord Grantham and withdraws her resignation. She forgot how fun it was to come upon people having sex in awkward places. (laughs) I just can't see that happening in America, not like it does here. Uh, There's also a few shots of people dancing, including Edith and Thomas, which I just enjoyed. It was was just a nice little two seconds of them dancing together and both... Well, we saw his bear moves earlier, so he's a good dancer. (laughs) That's true. Matthew asks Mary to dance, and he asks about her trip to America. She says she'll book her passage as soon as she's heard back from Grandmama, and he wonders if she'll be gone long. She says she's not sure. You know, it's all kind of contingent on how big of a jilted lover Richard Carlyle is. Yeah. Uh, Lord Grantham comes into the library where McGee is sitting. They agree it's time for bed. It's apparently gotten pretty late. She says that she's written to Sybil. She sent her your love. And Lord Grantham's like, I don't love Sybil. <laughs> <laughs> But they basically talk about Sybil, and McGee says that she is not going to be denied her first grandchild, that this is not what she wanted for Sybil by any means, but it is what has happened, and they're going to have to accept it. She wants to go to Ireland, and she wants Sybil to visit them. She says, it's been a happy day, let's end it on a happy note, and Lord Grantham's pretty much agreed. I'm assuming they went upstairs to have sex in their shared bedroom. (laughs) Downstairs, Daisy is sitting with the planchette. O'Brien comes in and asks if Daisy's already tired. Daisy says yes, but she's just thinking about William. Anna comes in and tells O'Brien that McGee is ready for bed. So O'Brien goes up. Anna sits down with Daisy, and they start playing with the planchette. And some spirit tells them some bullshit, number one. Basically, it says, may they be happy with my love. And they're like, oh, you were moving it. I thought you were moving it. And it's very much a Milton Bradley commercial. And I almost threw something at my TV. I was, yeah. In case you're, in case you fell asleep (laughs) just now, the implication is that Lavinia's dead spirit saw Matthew and Mary dancing and was like, hey, this is great. And I'm like, why would you say that to people who don't even know what the fuck you're talking about? Yeah. Again, Assume that they have the inclination <laughs> to talk with the living. And again, this is a scene that is in the episode in place of other things. Because also, Lavinia already said that. Yes, she on her deathbed. She said it was fine. Her actual physical body said it to Matthew. Yes. <sighs> she was real sweaty, so you know you meant it. <laughs> That's right. Outside in the snow, Mary is standing she is she's wearing an awesome dress yes by the way it's this beautiful like ruched burgundy number a thousand a thousand a million times better than that horrible horrible rag that i hope (laughs) is at the bottom of some pig slop (laughs) sorry i'm really mad about that dress still clearly clearly so matthew coincidentally enough comes out to join her and says that the ball was fun there's going to be a bunch of thick heads in the morning i believe is how he phrases it Hangover, hangover, <laughs> hangover, hangover. He asks her if she's really going to America and wonders if Carlisle will make her life a nightmare. He then wants to know if she would stay if he asked. She says that he doesn't want that. It's not that they've been this to this place so many times before not to take her back there if he doesn't mean it. 
she says, won't the ghost of Mr. Pamuk resurrect himself every time we argue? And he says it won't. And she's like, well, seriously? Uh, so does this mean that you've forgiven me? And he says, no, I haven't forgiven you because I don't think you need your forgiveness, that you lived your life and I've lived mine, and now we should start living our lives together. Aww. Yeah. And he says that he thinks he thinks Lavinia would want them to be happy. Why don't you ask Anna Daisy? <laughs> Again, it's clearly established she would. And so he he asked her to marry him, and she says if, if he's going to do it, he has to do it properly, has to get down on one knee. And so he does. And her reaction shot to that is so great and cute and like mm-hmm. this sort of girly like, oh, he's really doing it? And, well, because uh, Carlisle didn't. Yeah. He was just like, uh, so, you want to get married? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was like the Norm MacDonald of proposals. <laughs> yeah. And he says, Lady Mary Crawley, will you marry me? And No, he says, Lady we- Mary Crawley, will you do me the honor of becoming my wife? Yes. And she says, yes. And they kiss. And then we get an exterior shot of Downton Abbey. <laughs> we do. It is the star of the show. Yes. And hooray. That's Downton Abbey series two. Yeah. We made it. We did. We're all still alive. Hooray. Hooray. <laughs> so now it's time for the last round of the Abbeys. Yeah. I think. I, I don't know if we'll be doing uh, anything like this necessarily for non-Downton stuff. Yeah. It seems kind of disrespectful. Right. You know, it'd be like giving an Emmy to a stage play. <laughs> would be strange i don't know about disrespectful but just uh so gibson girl this episode actually goes to rosamond because Mm. that number she was wearing when jinxie was being all white rabbit uh was super cute and she just had a rough episode i wanted to cut her a little slack yeah it's the first time i've had any sympathy for the woman yeah yeah i mean she always she's always looked pretty good she has but it's just never been anything right right i mean i think part of her whole deal was that she wanted to blend in like the character Mm -hmm. wants to blend in Mm -hmm. but she looked really stunning yeah yeah and so apparently you know gibson girl is based on both what clothes i like and who i feel sorry for fair enough it's your award best evasion uh once again julian fellows evading a lot of drama (laughs) yes thomas evaded uh getting found out as the culprit of isis's kidnap dog nap true enough yeah yeah uh mary evaded marrying richard carlisle that's absolutely correct uh mrs patmore evaded nagging daisy by invoking (laughs) the supernatural (laughs) rosamond evaded a very bad idea marriage lavinia appears to have evaded the grave (laughs) (laughs) uh but i think i think we have to give this one uh to the one man who evaded something with the highest stakes (laughs) Bates avoided certain death. That's true. Uh, perhaps to our chagrin, but we know a winner when we see one. Yes. <laughs> well, it's a bit late now. One more nomination would just be ISIS for evading <laughs> the shed. Yes. <laughs> but yes, Mr. Bates, well done. Except boo. <laughs> well, yeah. Get a job! <laughs> Somewhere else! <laughs> Remember when you wanted that hotel? Best overbite in this one. Come on. Jinxie. That's right. Jinxie. Yeah. My old pal. My old buddy. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure, I can spot you at 20, Jinxie. <laughs> Your overbite's so convincing. Yeah. I mean, that was the easy call. Uh, if in, in addition for the fact that, correct me if I'm wrong, Edith did not have a line in the second half of this episode. She might have said something in that scene when they told Anna about Bass's reprieve, but I don't think she did. Yeah, I don't think so. So, yeah, so that's that. And now, drum roll, please. (laughs) If you can't hear that, do your own at home. (laughs) Go back. We'll wait. 
Okay. The and now the final Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smith's rating of series two of Downton Abbey. All known episodes of Downton Abbey. Yes. It's a five! Hooray! And you know how she started with a solid five. Absolutely. Primarily for her uh comments to Richard Carlyle. Yes. Comments about the horrid vase. Talking to Daisy, just being a yep. being awesome. Yeah, giving Thomas some sass. Yeah, not a false step in the whole episode. No, I mean you got to give her a five overall. Yeah, you know. Yeah, God help Julian Fellows if she doesn't come back after the third series. Here, here. And and now that we've brought this up, let's talk a little about the third series. Let's. So we know Shirley MacLaine is coming on board, right? As Cora's mother, McGee. For those of you who have completely forgotten her name, <laughs> yeah. We know she's originally from Cincinnati, which yes. is awesome for me, because I am originally from Cincinnati. So you are. We know her husband was a textile merchant who struck it rich, and presumably then you know they moved to New York to be part of high society. Mm-hmm. So she's coming over to Downton because they need money, probably. Which, man, they have problems with fortune hunters, but they don't have a problem hunting for fortunes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so she's coming over, I think we can all assume, based on various tweets, that Sybil and Branson will be back in the picture. Mary and Matthew will be, I think, prepping for the wedding. I think it's 1921, possibly. Okay. I can't remember well, the exact date. And also, this means, I uh, presumably, we will see a baby, right? <gasps> baby! Yeah. Which is just a, a new thing. We haven't seen how children fit into the society I at all. I also know that there's going to be flashbacks to young Edith, Sybil, and Mary, which oh I am against. Yeah. <laughs> that is some... Yeah. Played out New Jack six feet under horse crap. Yeah. Like, because, well, yeah. Mm-mm, I don't no. like it when they have dream sequences on Mad Men. I definitely am not going to like it when they have uh, flashbacks to their childhood. Yeah, like, unless you filmed this all 15 years ago with a younger Michelle Dockery and the others, I don't know their names. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just, I'm, I'm very skeptical. Well, about and it. it's like considering the lead balloon that is Julian <laughs> Fellows' sense of drama, I just don't think it could possibly go well. Yeah. I, I hope that they're going to deal with the fallout of the Pamuk scandal and yeah. see how that affects Mary. I hope it doesn't just go away because I would be very interested to see if it is something she can ever bounce back from yeah. or if this is just part of the larger declining fortunes of Downton Abbey and we see them kind of brought low. I, I like to imagine that the first scene in uh, the first episode of Series 3 is just going to be Matthew and Mary in the middle of a giant argument, <laughs> you know, <laughs> And he's like, oh, yeah, you know, maybe maybe you should just go back to Mr. Pamuk. How about that, huh? She's like, oh, the Pamuk again. Always Pamuk. You think that is way funnier than I do. I think it's hilarious. <laughs> I just, like, I imagine them, like, throwing a dishpan at each other. Where would other. they get a dishpan? <laughs> I don't know. This is just ludicrous, Tom. Their fortunes haven't fallen that far. I hope Bates is dead of <laughs> consumption or something, just anything. Well, Look, I either hope Bates is out of prison or that he's dead. Because right. I don't want to deal with the legal battle. I yeah. am so uninterested. Because yeah. whatever it is, it's going to be implausible. Let's just get it resolved. One yeah. way or the other. Like, I want to, you know, I don't like him. I don't like him with Anna. But since that's clearly the path we're on, let's see them actually be together and do some stuff. Any, yeah. Anything. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, I'm done with this. I've been done with it since it started. Mm-hmm. Let's move on. On a happier note, we'll see Daisy maybe moving into this position with a little more authority. Yeah. Uh, Hopefully more of Mr. Mason. That would be great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I imagine Mrs. Patmore will just continue. (laughs) I'd 
I'd like to see something good for Mrs. Hughes. Yes. She really got the short end of the stick in this second series. And actually, Carson only did... I guess all he really had was getting poached off of Lord Grantham. But he didn't really have anything... Yeah. That was his to hang his hat on. Maybe that's why he was so angry. Yeah, yeah. Like, everyone's having so much drama. <laughs> I was a cheerful Charlie, damn it. <laughs> Curious to see if the rift between Thomas and O'Brien is healed. Yeah. Uh, her yeah. nephew coming in as a new footman. Right. So that's going to, you know, he's probably going to be her new scheming partner. Yeah. He's yeah. already schemed his way into this job. Yeah. So, again, got one up on Thomas. Mm-hmm. Thomas will presumably still be Lord Grantham's valet. Uh, Has he been rehabilitated from his horrible ways, or is he going to start pinching more valuable stuff? Well, and it's just hard to think, what do you do with Thomas if he's Lord Grantham's valet and it's stable? Because that's been his only motivation throughout this series. I mean, maybe we'll get some new villains. I mean, they could use some. Yeah, yeah. We've we've covered a very long period of history, and I mean, O'Brien seems to have redeemed herself entirely at this point, Mm -hmm. to me. Personally. Yeah. Your yeah. mileage may vary, but I think, you know, she feels genuine remorse for a lot of the stuff that she's done and she's trying to be a better person. Right. Which is all any of us can really do. Yeah. I charge the Dowager Countess to not die and continue with the zinger. <laughs> right. That's all we want. Well, and I would love to see Edith with somebody of her own age. Oh my God, seriously. Who wasn't horribly disfigured yeah. or not interested or Canadian. Right. Like, Anthony Strallen's a nice guy, and if that's what you're going to do. I'll grit my teeth and deal with it. But please, give Edith a real relationship. Even if it doesn't work out. Yeah. Let it be an actual thing. Yeah. So we'll see McGee being a grandmother. She doesn't get much to do, period. Yeah. Uh, neither her nor Lord Grantham really do. Yeah. They're, they're very much sort of the satellite around which everything else right. revolves. I'm curious what happens to Rosamond. If she finds somebody else to while away her twilight years with or yeah, yeah. she seems to be unhappy with the spinsterdom. Yeah. Um, have we covered all the all the major players? I think so. Uh yeah. I will the hall boy get more lines or will yeah. it be edged out by O'Brien's nephew? Yeah. Yeah. Will the mystery servants ever appear again? <laughs> They're at the servants' ball, I saw them. Yeah, no, it's true. They were dancing They even. were dancing. Will Murray shave his mustache? <laughs> The world wants to know. Uh, so, yeah, if you have predictions, let us know. We do have a lot of mail coming in these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just to let you know, we may not be able to read every single letter on the podcast going forward. You yeah. Know, we'll do our best. But, you know, everybody's been sending letters in so frequently that it's it's hard to get around to everybody. Right. Which brings us to, I think, another topic that we wanted to talk about a little bit here at the end of Downton Abbey, which is our cousins. Man. Don't go making me getting all weepy here, Tom. <laughs> yeah, we're going to try to not be too emotional about this and be British and stiff upper lip and all yes. that. But it has been so great to get all the feedback we've gotten, you know, whether it's just a like on Facebook or just all the, the telegrams people have sent us. Or um, even the mean things people write about us on iTunes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm like, I'm shrill. You noticed. <laughs> you listen. <laughs> Yeah. I am like Kathy Griffin. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because, you know, this, it's been a lot of work every week. We, we don't think we're going to get it out. We're like, ah, oh, that's too much to do. But it's been, I've really been surprised at how rewarding it has been. And it's because of, of the cousins. And when we started, you know, we knew there wasn't any Downton Abbey podcast out there. Mm-hmm. We looked and looked and made sure. 
We were the first one on iTunes. Yeah. There's a few more now, but we were the first. And I, uh, I'll toot our horn a little bit and say we're the best. I agree. But we didn't know if anybody would listen or yeah. if anybody would enjoy it or if you'd like the historical segments. Yeah. Uh, and just engaging with all of you and getting to share our obsession with Downton Abbey with all of you every week has just been such an amazing experience. And it's one yeah. that we never would have expected to have. Yeah. And just having so many people all over the world who have who have connected with us because of this show, because yeah. of this podcast, it's been truly amazing. So we just want to say thank you yeah. for doing this. And we hope that you'll continue to tune in as we explore uh, more facets of Edwardian culture. That's right. Uh, we're excited. And upward. Yeah. We'll be, you know, we'll be looking at the the black experience both in America and Britain. Mm-hmm. We'll be looking at the American experience. Right. Period. Yeah. Uh, a little bit more in depth. We'll be watching some cool movies and some awesome TV shows. We'll be watching some horrible movies and some horrible TV shows. Yeah, but we'll have new characters to like and dislike and impersonate. And so that that part is exciting because, you know, we've watched every episode of Downton Abbey four times at this point. At least. Yeah. And it does... It does get a little tiring after a while <laughs> to see the same faces over and over again. But I am going to miss it. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of oh, yeah. sad now. Look, we wouldn't have watched every episode four times if we didn't secretly love it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, I mean, that's the end of the Downton Abbey podcast. We will be back in two weeks mm-hmm. with our Gosford Park podcast. Again, Keep the telegrams coming. If you have questions for Tom Repeat's history or fashion backwards, we want to know. Mm-hmm. If you have wacky predictions for Series 3, we also want to know. That's right. Uh, you can send us spoilers. Just make sure they're clearly marked. Although they're keeping a pretty tight lid on this. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, from... from Well, and I sort of feel like, given our sort of responsibility at this point as makers of this podcast, that we're just going to be spoiled on things yeah, to an extent. Yeah, it's true. And we can't avoid that. We're going we're gonna to do our best to keep you unspoiled, right. but we will, we will take the spoiler bullet for you if necessary. <laughs> yes. So that brings us to the end. So, yeah. you know, keep calm, read some awesome books, <laughs> watch some awesome movies, gird your loins <laughs> for uh, the next round of podcasts. And uh, we actually have a special guest in with us for the final sign-off of Downton Abbey. Until next time, up Up yours yours downstairs. in your pipe and smoke it.
So put that in your pipe and smoke it. Oh, oh. <laughs>